Welcome to Speaks Loud and Words, episode eight. As always, I'm Dave Reed. Paul Statham is a really awesome guy who obviously loves music so much. He reels off his experiences and the people he's met. He just has an amazing list of people he's worked with. Kylie, Dido, The Saturdays, Ed Druitt, he's been working with Ed Druitt, and it just, it's a great list of just, of just such amazing experience. And it was just so cool to talk to him about all of that. <laughs> so, Paul, thank you so much for yeah, it's pleasure. This. Absolutely. Um, we're going to jump right in back to yeah. the beginning um, to talk about maybe how music was a part of your childhood. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's jump right in. What did you listen to before you could choose to listen to music? No, without a shadow of a doubt, it was the top 40, the countdown. Top of the Pops? Top of the Pops. Every Friday night, was it? Every Thursday night back then, mate. Mm. Talking the 70s, the age fool year. <laughs> Yeah, 70s, Thursday night, Top of the Pops. But more importantly was was that Sunday night Top 40 countdown. Back then, such good records made the Top 40, especially singles. You had Bowie, Boland, stuff that I was really interested in, Mott the Hoople, sort of more the uh, clever end of glam than the rubbishy side of it. But I had the little tape recorder. Okay. You, didn't, you never had the two-in-ones then. It's it's like a little art in itself. You get the little tape recorder with the push-up red record button, put it next to the radio, try and edit out the DJ. And you kind of, I suppose you were making your own little uh, mixtapes in a, in a way, but only of your favourite stuff. And then spend the whole of the night with it in bed with, with the earphone in. Mm. The single earphone. <laughs> well, what, so from that era, can you remember some songs that really hit you? Specifically, oh, definitely get it on uh, Mark Bolan, T Rex. Mm. Uh, I cannot Ziggy Stardust so much as uh, uh, yeah, Starman Bowie stuff like that. Get going younger, it would have been like man, I can't remember what would be some, some of the first stuff I listened to that I liked. Ride oh Mud, Rider White Swan, Mark Bolan. Yeah, not I was never a. Uh, Bay City Roller fan. Okay. Although I might, take, I might have been, but yeah, I always, always loved it. Always had uh, music around, um, and I've always been fascinated by it. Mm. You know, so it wasn't like um, some kids could say I was into football or I was into this. I'd say I was definitely from an early age into music. You know, wanting to kind of learn how to play along to the tape recorder and stuff, and and how did it work, and what was this sound, and what made this record different from the other. Even as a kid, I suppose a bit nerdily analytical over it. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. Look where you are now. You know, it's yeah, in a converted that. bedroom, still yeah. listening to music. It's in your issue, yeah. Some could say life hasn't moved on. Well, <laughs> although yeah, I'm I'm able to do it for a living, which is very pleasurable. Mm. Very pleasurable, yeah. So, you were, when you were very long, what were the first instruments you picked up? Would be uh, a guitar. That for some reason, well, it certainly would have been anything to do with my parents because they were definitely non musical. I suppose I must have badgered for Christmas a little cheap acoustic guitar. Yeah, I think I remember it a green coloured thing. You don't have it anymore? No, no. In fact, no, it wasn't mine. I, I nicked it from somebody's house, a mate's house. He had a green guitar. And I got it. Somehow I got it back to my house and it stayed there. I saw on your website that you are a multi-instrumentalist. Uh, yeah. So you obviously evolved from the guitar. Uh, yeah. What was the next thing for you? Well, that's kind of a weird one, is that I had this... Uh, I wanted to learn to play keyboards. My little brother had this... Bon Tempe organ thing and uh, I, I, when I was 16, 17 I had this job, this crappy job at Mansfield Council and I could play guitar a bit and I knew what the scales were but I couldn't work out how to translate it to a keyboard so when I was scratched onto my desk with a compass and hid it under the uh, the map the, not not a mouse map, you didn't have computers then, an, an ink blotting map thing I scratched the keyboard like a two octave keyboard on it and in my head, I just worked out what the scales were by going, the C's all the white notes. So if I go one, two, three, four, and what would happen if I move that up to D without actually having a keyboard there? Quite analytical, but it was, it was actually a way of going, well, if I go to D, then the same space is going to be 
one one oh then it's going to be a black one so it's going to go no 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 and I, in my mind's eye i was able to sort of visualize what a keyboard player would do and it was great and you saw these completely two different ways of performing music uh, keyboard playing is quite visual it's sort of set out in front of you guitar playing is more instinctive it's just you've sort of got this instrument you know you, it's very tactile um but they're both coming from the same source and the chord structures of the notation is exactly the same so it wasn't like you had to learn a different language or something you know it's, it, and yeah so then i would go home and take what i'd learn at the council officers doing fuck all work and then nick my brother's bon tem um, there's a pattern of stealing things here as well stealing guitars stealing time from the council yeah, none of this is mine it's all stolen so going into your teenage years uh what were you, what were your core influences in music that you were listening to was it still the top of the pops thing or was there bands emerging that you would continually listen to uh, the records oh well i suppose in the sort of late mid late 70s there was a lots of kind of movements were, were coming out you know that are still influential today like the punk stuff like i was uh, still at school but became one of the first punks in school inverted commas meaning you know as young as you as, as punky as you can be at 15 but dye the hair form a little band thrashy out stuff so definitely was that was when i got into actual not listening to records but actually buying them was was buying those really brilliant first punk um vinyl seven inch stuff that used to come out every week you know cortinas downs uh chelsea bands like this they're not necessarily didn't make it into the higher sort of punk echelon now but but back then every week you could go to the local record store buy one or you know get one and um i just fascinated by it so definitely punk but at the same time i really got into brian eno because a couple of mates of mine were a lot older and were a little bit out there so many nights you know they would put on another green world or something which is out it's 1976 i think so I sort of started getting seriously into this ambient electronic music. Bowie had just released Low, so that was a commercial sort of way of getting into the electronica sort of stuff. At the same time as well, disco was massive. That kind of exploded around about uh, early to mid-70s. So, of course, school discos were all northern soul and disco. You've got kind of reggae was breaking through with Bob Marley. You've got this incredible strong time mm. for... Uh, eclectic music movements that became actually quite influential so as a kid there was a hell of a lot you could be influenced by i mean i remember most people at school were proggies with the max and the zeppelin albums and black sabbath but actually now that i really quite love i mean zeppelin i find amazing you know? but i was kind of more into the three minute pop song if one thing about the past is you can't change it you were it is what it was yeah so why did you form movie and what, why did that come about oh, i've got the t-shirt on oh amazing <laughs> <That> amazing <laughs> remembrance day t-shirt because um at school we we were initially a punk band as you do when you're young you get fed up of people you kick them out really quick because they they looked at you the wrong way or, or you, you fall out a lot when you're 16 15 so we eventually steve hovington who was the headmaster's son actually joined the band and found out he was a really good songwriter. So within two years, we were signed. People say how different the landscape is musically now, but actually there's a few very key common elements. Um, like now, it's very easy to get stuff out via internet, iTunes, setting up your own, if you like, virtual record company. I have one myself, The Dark Flowers, which I will get to later. Um, Back then, there was a huge uh, rise in independent record labels. I think every town, every small town, even had a local independent record label who would come and see you play the pub and probably pay for you to go into a cheap four-track studio. And before you knew it, there was your little vinyl pressing to do with what you will. But uh, So we were able very quickly, at a young age, to start releasing pieces of vinyl, which got the attention of John Peel, which led to signing to London Records, which uh, we were lucky, I suppose, mm. to go out there. And talking about songwriting within 
that band what were the dynamics like and how did it how, how the did dynamics it were really strange the fact that I wasn't really writing um as you say I was the hedonistic member of B movie in, at 17 I was a guitarist and um Steve wrote most of the stuff the singer um because he could and because he could be bothered and at that age we had no preconceptions of any kind of career in music or the writing aspect of it um that dawned on me a little bit later that there was some serious money to be made in this as we released a song called nowhere girl which did really well um if not over here it, it did in the west coast of america and it's still played there now and i saw that steve was making a lot of money from this <laughs> this strange thing called prs was buying him a car at 18 wow. you know so it didn't have a, a massive effect uh, in terms of writing B-movie? No, no. But um, what kind of input did you have into B-movie? Um, I was the only one who played the, the guitar in the band, so it was a kind of the psychedelic post-punk thing where the guitar was quite important. Inspirations from magazine, Simple Minds, which is strange. I've now worked with Jim Kerr. It's very strange to have Jim in here, the studio, when I used to follow the band round young, you know, Simple Minds and stuff. Um, so I was quite happy with, with not having to, to write stuff and just work my guitar parts out and stuff like that. So what did you take away from the B-movie era, I guess? Uh, four good friends who we're still friends with now. We're, we're actually about to release a new album. Oh, brilliant. 30 years later. So, yeah, I, I mean... You know, music is a sociable thing as well. People forget that. You you make a you find a lot of like minded people when you when you're in a band or you're writing together. I think you can develop quite strong friendships which seem to last um and you still share your interest in music. So I I also got a love of playing live out of that because at a young age, I mean by nineteen we were touring Europe by 20 we were touring the states canada so it certainly opened my eyes as a person it was a, a great uh, environment to grow up in that's for sure mm. <laughs> yeah and musically what did you take away in terms of well we had a great keyboard player and i'd kind of done my little bits trying to learn how to play but having a great keyboard player in the band and meaning that there were keyboards at the rehearsals meant i could when everybody had gone I could stay behind and play on Rick's keyboards then I learned to drum which I loved doing so I'd used Graham's drum kit the branching out becoming a multi-instrumentalist I suppose came from being in that band and having instruments lying around that I wouldn't normally have been able to afford or had the inclination to to pick up so certainly not songwriting although Steve's a great writer obviously I learned how he structured stuff but from B-movie was much more learning to play different instruments mm. because they were just there. And you still use that today, obviously, with yeah. producing. Yeah, and, and continue to develop it. I love playing. I love it. Yeah, it's more when I when B-movie split up and I started to work with Peter Murphy, who had left our house, who were a big goth band, and had gone solo, that I started to really get into the writing. I mean, we've done 10 albums now. Mm. We're, that goes back 25 years. I, I started writing with him in 1988 on the Love Hysteria album, which sold good in America. It sold 100,000 albums. And I just started writing with him, the only band member to really write with him, purely because I was multi-instrumentalist, which meant I could go around his house, you know, I could lay out, sketch out the whole backing track for him, which led to us writing together still now. So at the time, back when you first started, how how did your relationship differ from your relationship with B-Movie? Yeah, it was a lot... Uh, I had to grow up a lot because, A, he'd, he'd had sort of success in Bear House. They were a huge cult band. They'd, they'd hit the top 20 with a couple of songs and we were a bunch of jokers. But we developed a sort of very good friendship. I spent a lot of time writing with him in Ankara when he moved to Turkey, and and uh, as I say, we still write together now. But yeah, it was a, it was a, if if like B movie was the was the childhood working with Peter was a was growing up quick. 
mm. and having to take responsibility because before you knew it you were in a proper big studio being paid for by beggars banquet with a good producer and you couldn't be messing about and, and running down the pub and also the stuff you wrote came out you know the second album i did with him deep was massive in the states it, it did four hundred thousand, and we won a billboard award for modern rock single and my prs started to come in i started to envisage that this was potentially able to to make a living from this because bear in mind at that point you're moving into your mid to late 20s i think that's the point where a lot of writers musicians leave the game if you like if they're not able to sustain any sort of income from it because you, at that time you start to develop longer lasting relations you maybe have children and you have to finance that in some sort of way you, you don't have to have a hugely extravagant lifestyle but you you can no longer just be on the dole and, and messing about so hmm. it was important for me that i took what had happened with peter and actually ran with it and kind of developed this a bit more to see where it would lead that music you were creating with peter at that time how did that differ from the music he was making beforehand ah some would say i suppose some of his fans initially said that i'd brought in a pop element i wouldn't say it was a pop element ah. i would say it was um a more I don't know, yeah, they were right. More pop elements. <laughs> Singles were written that were getting played on, on radio. Mm. Uh, the first album he'd released, which I didn't get involved with, uh, had sold, I think, 20,000 copies worldwide. The first album I wrote with, I wrote only three songs on it, but two of them were, were the singles, and that did 100,000. The second album I wrote with him, we co-wrote the whole thing, that jumped up to 400,000. So from his perspective, he saw that maybe we were both doing something right. So yeah, I, I think I brought a more lighter touch to the dark, a tonal gothic stuff. Mm -hmm. I hope he's not listening to this. <laughs> That'll be the end of our writing relationship. I'm sure not. No, no. But so, so what did you learn in that time? What, what did you learn and you took away from that period? A lot that anti-commercial was good, that it, that it went hand in hand with commercial, that you could be adventurous in your writing and make viable records, which was great because as a performer, Peter Murphy was and is brilliant. And we did so many tours. I mean, we did 12 American tours and, and they're 40 cities each. Um, and we did three, three Japanese tours in Europe and the Middle East, China. And it was just amazing. It was a great performer and he introduced a really um, ad-libbing element into the live aspects. So I learned to take my music into much darker areas as well as the lighter stuff, hmm. which for me is, is great, that he would take my sketches that I'd give him that were ultra lighter than what appeared on the album and darken them, and somehow that mixture really worked. And I, I still, to this day, really enjoy that aspect of... Of, uh, of making music. Mm -hmm. Talking about yourself, I guess, on your own, um, what's your preferred approach? To, oh. I mean, do, do, you, do you like to write on your own? No, I'm a collaborative writer, absolutely. I have a lousy voice for a start. You can probably tell from this interview, it's very monotone and honestly, to sing with it, it's just not gonna, you can't have everything. You know, sometimes I'd swap all the things I played to be able to sing. Mm. It's something because it's something that you've never done. But I totally admire and, and envy. I mean, Ed Drew has got an amazing voice. He just speaks. His, into char his charm comes across yeah. his voice. It's amazing. It's so good. You know, and, and Peter Murphy has this great gothic sort of baritone. And Dido has an amazingly pure, sweet voice. And believe me, I've got a studio here. I'd be a liar if I said I hadn't tried it many drunken nights. Sure. And it's just, oh, no. So I'm a collaborative writer, but I like to change the writing palette a lot. So sometimes it's guitar, sometimes it's piano, 
sometimes it's more synthesizers uh, sometimes it's just the beats sometimes it's bass guitar I love playing the bass guitar as well especially I'm a huge fan of Talking Heads uh, Remaining Light that, that album which crosses my Eno fascination as well because he produced a lot of the uh, the Talking Heads albums and bringing in those African rhythms uh which leads on to liking Graceland's Paul Simon. You can find this tree of of your musical likes and where they start to branch out into different areas, which is which is fascinating. Mm. If you sit down and analyse what it is that you liked at a particular period, and close to it, what you then moved into liking. Um, so riding on a bass guitar is sometimes really groovy and fun. Get some, especially now with loops, drum loops, you can just grab. I, I tend to like to switch, and I learned to play banjo over there, <laughs> somewhere, yeah. And I bought a lap steel guitar. I saw that, yeah. um, Using different instruments can really help create a whole oh, it's fantastic. new world for you to write into. It, it, it I was using banjos in my stuff way before this Mumford and Sons jike came out. But people I'd write with were like, oh God, put the banjo away. <laughs> you know, I just loved it. Do you have a favorite instrument? That you just love to whip out like when it's no guitar. One... It's still, mm. still. I've got one in every room. There's one up in the front room. There's one in the bedroom. There's one here. Mm. You know, there's. It's never far away. Grab it and go. yeah. Mm. I teach a lot now. Well, not a lot. I do one day a week at various universities, and I, I still take my guitar if I have to stay anywhere. You have to have it. Yeah, and I like it. I like. I'd sooner sit and play my guitar than and sit in front of an Xbox, you know. Hmm. What would you say are the strengths of collaborating with people? Oh, the strength that the other person brings. It's obviously, I mean, some people are, are, are incredibly talented at everything. I mean, you find writers who can play everything, they can sing, they can write, but a lot of people, a lot of writers aren't like that. They have strengths and weaknesses. I suppose one of the reasons I never went into singing is a sort of... Um, subconscious shyness it's sort of like exposing yourself in a real way and I also find that with lyric writing I find it very hard to pour your thoughts out onto a piece of paper mm. for other people you know admittedly most of the time they're not your thoughts they're you're writing it's a profession you you wear different hats and you create different characters I'm good at, at helping people with lyrics if they come up with an initial idea I can actually rewrite a whole song really quickly and I don't have a problem with it at all, but initiating a lyric is so... To me, it's like going up and talking to a girl in a bar. It's a, Some people are just can just do it. I, I just have never been able to do that. And writing lyrics, it's the sort of same thing. It's setting some sort of statement down on a mm. piece of paper. So I'm much happier bringing to it some very nice chords, interesting changes, nice textures, melody lines, structure... Once somebody's got going with the lyric, then I can quickly help kick it into shape and, and really go to town on it. Mm. And I love that. I actually really get a great sense of enjoyment from it. But I've just never got over that initial thing mm. of, of doing it, mm. you know, which is it's just like being in a therapy, isn't it? What, <laughs> what pouring out your lyrics, you mean? Now I'm saying this being interviewed. Oh, <laughs> you know, I should you be paying you for an hour. You say that, but... You know, when I interviewed Ed Druitt, he said the same thing once we turned the machine off. He he said it was at times a bit emotional. In, in yeah, the well, Ed, I have great friendship with him. He's, I worked right here with him way before he signed to Warner's. We, we did the whole of the sort of developing thing here. So he'd come every day for a year. We've got like 30, 40 songs on there. Um, only a couple of them that remain that we that he, he is using. But yeah, I got to know his family really well. And we went to Centre Parks and with my daughter and his mum and dad and Lizzie, his sister. And you know, he, he's a really he's a really cool mate. And uh, that's another thing I was saying earlier. You can make great friendships in music. So the actual process itself. Um, Say so you've, you've you've brought somebody in, uh, or somebody's come to you. Yeah. And say so you're starting from scratch, maybe they've got the title that you mentioned just yes, now. Yeah. Where do you go from that? What's your first thought? Is it to get, I mean... First thought is, is what is the song for? Is it is it them as an artist? Or is it writing specifically for someone? 
um, two things are very different. If it's the person as an artist, then you really need to find out where they're coming from, what it, what sort of album it is they're wanting to make and, and things, because you can waste a lot of time because you find that you want to agree with each other when you first met. Uh, you don't want to sort of rock the boat. So you can spend a day doing something and then the end of it, when you, once you've got to know each other the next day, you say, say, well, you know, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. But you're anyway, too polite, perhaps. But you're too polite. So it's kind of like really important to not have that sort of barrier and, and say, you know, play me either a couple of tracks that you've done really recently so you can get an idea in your head of where they're at or, or let's just play me some stuff that you really like and I'll do the same. And that way you can mentally start to at least see where you, you should be going with it. And yeah, and then the process, I suppose, normally does start with music seems to come first. Like the, you know, once you've found a, a, a genre or a timbres in music that they like to use, some people might like something quite percussive. Some people might be more piano-based balladry. It might be a guitar-driven mm. pop. It might be whatever. So therefore you can then at least know which instrument to choose to start the track. Would you jump to the guitar mostly or piano? No, I mean, uh, personally, I love playing the guitar, but, but no, absolutely not, because a lot of the, the artists you work with are, are, can be electronic-based, or, or if it's an R&B-based thing, then probably one of the first things you would go for is, is a good groove. So you're then into a different area completely. You, you, you're then more into the rhythmic and drum programming side of it, mm. which, is, which is great as well, but that itself is something you have to learn to do. I mean, a lot of contemporary music is actually quite beat heavy and, and they're quite specific about the kind of sounds they they like, especially the younger they are. I'm working with this great singer who Warners have been interested in called Devon, who's a actually was a friend of my daughter's from school, but she's only 17, but her writing has really developed. But I mean, she comes in and just plays me YouTube stuff and she's incredibly specific about the kind of beat that she wants so it, you're jumping around all over the place but essentially if it's an artist you're working with to let them guide the session initially to at least get it going in the right direction if you're writing for somebody else that's pretty easy really i mean you listen to something else they've done and you just both sit around and i pick the guitar up and just bash out some chords or if that's not working go to the piano and bash out some chords and hopefully they'll twig a melody line or a lyric or a, a chorus idea and it's a kind of leapfrog process somebody comes up with that then somebody tops it and comes up with that and you add that and then you find yourself moving towards a chorus and or you get the chorus first and you work backwards it, it's actually really good fun it's not hard once you've been doing it for a while so you would say you would go to the instrument first and then wait for a melody line to yeah. come? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, it's very rare that somebody comes in with a completed lyric that they've written prior to any instruments being put on or a melody. I find that occasionally people do that and it does work mm. but it's, it's then a little bit harder to start fitting things around that but come up with some simple chords and, and generally the melody just comes banging out. Um, then it's just a matter of jumping in and, and doing it, the whole thing together. They're totally free to write whatever they like musically as well. It's not like, you know, get off my instruments. You know, a lot of the time it's like you find out that people are sort of pushing the chair through the day slowly towards the piano. It's like, well, if you play, you know, feel free. Yeah. It's a creative yeah. room, it's right? A, you, know, you can play anything you like, mm. Mm. even if you feel comfortable sitting with a guitar on your lap yeah. to do it, you know. <laughs> And so stripping a song right down, say when you're flicking through YouTube or mm. anything online, when you hear a song, what is it that makes you turn your head and really pulls you to listen to that song? Or what, what grabs you? Normally the vocal. The quality of the vocals. Yes, yeah. I'm a sucker for really good singers. And I've generally found that the better the singer, it tends to be the better the song. You can write great songs with uh, people who can't sing great, especially if they're going, if you're pitching them to other people. But 
it's so much easier if somebody's got a great tone in their voice. Mm. Not uh, not talking about a vocal dynamic range because you know uh, that can be off-putting if somebody can whoop up and down the octaves. But again, someone like Ed has a great tone to his voice, as did Dido as well. So it made the writing really pleasurable because instantly you could put something down and there was a quality inherent in the vocal that made you instantly up your game towards writing songs with them. You didn't have to struggle to envisage where it would go, it was actually instantaneously there. It's still, I'm drawn to great singers. I love Scott Walker, I love Bowie, you know, uh, Kate Bush. I'm going, I'm not citing anybody contemporary here. But yeah, these are the people who have stuck around for years that you you've continued to listen to. I guess. Yes. Yeah. I was very excited when I heard Bay had bought a new single out. Mm. I raced back from Cafe Nero <laughs> to here to download it. Yeah, I might have even had a coffee to go. <laughs> well, I must have pushed the boat out that day. <laughs> and so, talking about a favourite song that you've written, let's, let's maybe go into that. Can you think of one particular song that sticks out from the rest of them that you have a special? Maybe a a fond memory. Yeah, I mean, there's lots. There's lots. There's uh, between when I stopped working with Peter Murphy and, and signed to Warner Chapels, which was a long while ago. It was 16, 17 years ago. Was through a band that I formed with Pascal Gabriel, who's a producer writer, who was producing an album with Peter Murphy me and Peter had written, Pascal was the producer and we all went to Spain to this lovely studio mm. near in the Ronda Valley to work for six weeks on this album. I became great mates with Pascal. We came back to London and I needed a change. I'd been working with Peter for a long while and, and we formed this band together, Peach. It was an amazing sort of electronic electro 60s kind of band we, we got this singer lisa so it was a sort of three piece i suppose like as nearest comparison would be saint etienne the songs are very baccarat like so and pascal was a great producer and had this amazing studio so he was able to introduce this electronic element to it i was able to kind of really expand the chord right and make this big grand songs and lisa had a lovely voice and before we knew it we were in mute studios doing this album. Then Mike Salt came down, it's the first time I met him, and we signed to Warners. But there was a single off that album called On My Own, which was so great writing, because instantly I loved it. This great big piano motif at the start of it, and it was fun, but it was dark at the same time, and, and uh, Warners got it into the Sliding Doors film, the Gwyneth Paltrow film, and uh, it suddenly became an American hit. It just took off and bombed it was number 11 in American radio charts and to single it physically itself sold into the top 40. Mm. So it was really colourful time. I'd come out of working with Peter Murphy, which was very dark, and Pascal was very sort of flamboyant and, and larger than life. So all of a sudden, it's like my life went back into multicolour and we were filming these incredibly daft videos for Mute and, and going off to promote this song. But I've really fond memories of recording that song. And that song changed, again, changed the direction of where I was going in my life. It, it meant I'd signed to a good publisher. And it was just, it was just really lovely. It was, a, it was just a, a great pop album to make after making five or six darker albums with, with Pete and and also as I say socially Pascal was a very sociable person so Peter Murphy wasn't a sociable person he didn't live in England for a start uh, he lived in the middle of Turkey so you weren't, you weren't going to nip out for a drink with him he didn't drink anyway <laughs> but Pascal was great so it reintroduced this huge social element back into music again which I was missing and uh I was given the run of Pascal's studio and it was great, you know, I I played most of the stuff on that album, a lot of it was, was great to play the piano and bits of guitar and programming and, and Pascal as well was a brilliant programmer and so that was a very fun couple of years. And how did it break down with you three writing that song or was it? 
I would say that it was essentially myself and Pascal mm-hmm. who did most of the writing. Pascal wasn't afraid to come up with lyrics. He was a good lyric writer, actually. Um, and Lisa sort of chipped in the singer and added her own little bit. But uh, the bulk of it was, was Pascal and myself. And uh, it was just a free-for-all in the studio. It was incredibly... It was great. It was very non-specific and creative and, you, could, you know, just developing a writing relationship with one person who also played over an album was really good fun he would come up with great beats we were sampling records because he'd been in s express and and produced bomb the bass so it was the time of the cut and paste you know sampling taking stuff off records and and building up whole tracks like that so that was a, a whole new art as well to learn the art of stealing other people's work. Is that what you Appropriation. took? Appropriation. What did you say? Was that what you took away with you? We would take drum beats off records and little bits of conversation and, and ideas and, you know, uh, and it was just um, a really nice time. Mm. And that, that was the time that, that uh, again, it was nice to have a, a hit single. Because I think a lot of the times as a writer, it's very difficult to justify what you do. You can lose faith in Give, what you it do. It gives you confidence, basically. Then. And it, it just reboots your confidence. That you, Oh, I must have been doing something right that led to this point. And then that gives you another, another two, three years grace to continue doing what it is you love doing. You know, that, that then led to, to here with me with Dido around the same time and No Angel and, and, um, and then working with Kylie on her Fever album and... It was just a really good fun, and um, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Mm. Let's talk about a little bit about working with Dido. So, mm. well, the, the time we met her, she hadn't, she'd only signed the publishing. She hadn't got any a record deal. Mike had signed myself and Pascal first, and I think he'd signed Dido second. So we were his fledgling little writing team. Oh, that, wow. that was all he had. Mm. So he could only put the two of us together and see what happened which resulted some great songs came out I mean Here With Me came out this was the second or third song we, we, we wrote and those four or five songs helped her to get her record deal so it was you had no inkling of what was in store for her uh, and the amount of records sold at all except I remember Mike Salt saying that Here With Me the minute you heard the demo that's a career song and I was like, really? wow, it did sound good. You know, a lot of friends would say, oh, can you play that demo song again? You know, and uh, it didn't change much into the finished version anyway. Um, but but Dido was brilliant. Again, it was like working with somebody who had such a beautiful voice that um, you couldn't wait to hear us come up with stuff on top of what, what you'd written with her. Mm. It wasn't a chore. It was like, wow, that just sounds and even the the stuff that didn't make it onto the album it was still an um, a great mm. great voice you know and uh, she's very sociable as well so it it all fitted it all continued that quite light-hearted vein of writing which i i think produced some very good very good stuff what was your role in writing that song um the chords the i came up with the chords for that song through the verse into that nice little bridge and then she was writing lyrics as I was playing the chords with Pascal, who was sort of programming a drum beat mm. at the same time. So it was very specific in the fact of I was right that the, the, the keyboard was writing chords, Pascal was putting beats to it, and she was scribbling away writing the words. Mm. Um, within a day, it was done. Wow. I mean, some of the best songs just flow so simply, don't they? Uh, no Angel, we wrote, I wrote that with, with Dido, I think Pascal had gone somewhere. And I think we, we wrote the whole thing in 40 minutes, 45 minutes, just an acoustic guitar, and that's pretty much how it stayed. Um, but again, was when somebody's got a great tone in their voice, you it's so inspiring. And it, it, it's... You can see instantly that where where it could go. How has all this work differ from the project that you're working on at the moment, the Dark Flowers? 
Oh, the Dark Flowers is a is a labour of love. It's a it came about by my love of Brian Eno, Another Green World, and I was listening to a soundtrack album by Bruce Langhorne called The Hired Hand, which is really strange. It's got sort of a little background wind and noise and very sparse banjo and steel guitar and stuff. And I was reading the Motel Chronicles, Sam Shepard. I saw that on your website, yeah. Yeah, so, and I'm reading it and I'm listening to this music and I suddenly thought, wow, wouldn't it be great if you could combine an album based on these really weird tales of American outcasts and nutcases and dysfunctional people mm. over this kind of strange found sound and slide guitar and stuff so I kind of just formulated I just thought about it I don't know who the first person to jump in was I was working with Shelley Poole uh, from Alicia's Attic and she we did a, a solo album here called Hard Time for the Dreamer Shelley's got a lovely voice as well and that was great to write. That was some very, very straight, almost folky country album uh, with loads of harmonies. So I tried it out on Shelley. I gave her this quote in here, cellophane girl, and she wrote an amazing song on top of it. So once I'd got one, rather than do a whole album with Shelley because I'd just done one with her, um, I thought, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to send different vocalists different quotes from this book along with a piece of music and see who I could rein in mm. and it was people I'd worked with and uh, so Shelley and I'd just done this, this helicopter girl who'd been Mercury nominated for an album and I'd just produced and written two albums with her she was signed to Rob Dickens' label Instant Karma Rob used to be chairman at, at Warner Chapels for a long while and I'd become very Friend, good friends with Rob, and he suggested, well, you know, use Jackie on it. So Jackie Helicopter Girl came and did two tracks for the Dark Flower. So then I had two different vocalists, and thought, wow, this could actually really work. And uh, Dot Allison, who was also signed to Warner's, had been in One Dove and was singing with Massive Attack at the time. She came and did a track. And it was all very friendly based, and it was no time scale to it. And it, it built like that. I sent Peter Murphy a track and he did one. I'd met Jim Kerr from Simple Minds via his manager and we wrote together for his... He did a solo album called Lost Boy uh, last year. And in the course of that, he got it immediately and, and kept coming over. And every time I was in the UK, he came over. Well, I did six, seven tracks with him for the Dark Flowers thing, mm. which was able then to start pulling in people and getting people interested and just put it out now on a small label called Lojinks, who are a really cool label based in Brixton and we've got amazing reviews in Q this week and Mojo and it's really, I mean, it's like job done because when I started the project, the end for the Dark Flowers to me in my head at the time was, wouldn't it be great to just get a great review of Mojo? But I envisaged it as being like a kind of project that would get an album review of Mojo and we got one <laughs> it was a really good one it's a four star review and, and then you get greedy and you think oh I want another one mm. and Q have given us a good one now but you know we, it's, it's, we're getting some great stuff are you going to take it forward? Um, I don't know how to it, the difficulty is in using multi vocalists is to do it live it means you've got to bring in ten different singers over the whole album bear in mind Jim lives God knows where Jim Kerr lives. He lives out of a suitcase. He's in the south of France or Bali or Scotland or anywhere. Peter Murphy divides his time between Istanbul and Los Angeles and New York. Kate Havnevik lives in Oslo. Yeah, so it is inherently difficult. But I think we could do a one-off show. But we've decided to wait and see if we can build up a really good... Um, review situation and, and develop it more strongly it's not an album that we just want to say oh it's out it's gone we, we want to continue working it over the over a whole year releasing different tracks in fact the first single fast forest rain with kate havnevik is we've just done a video for it it's just going on youtube this week 
so it's just and it's it's getting great reviews and it's selling out on Amazon and you know it's really slowly pushing it forward and that is such good fun it's like my first ever after doing music all this long it's something that my name is as big as, as the other artist's name on it it's like whoa it is my own project mm. Pretty um, special to you, then. It really is, yeah. It really is, uh, and it's and it, you you almost feel like oh I've done that now. But as Q said, well, Dark Flowers too, you know. And I'm already thinking, oh god, yeah. But let's see if it if it continues to sell. And you know, it's great because it's almost like small time stuff again. So you have to come back. You have to push it yourself on Facebook. You have to keep reposting the interviews the you know you the likes on your page are important it's like we've gone up from 800 in a month to four and a half thousand so it's like even that you can see that that is growing and people like it so if we could get start to get some radio play now on a couple of the more um non-commercial radio stations i'd be really happy as long as you can keep an aspect of the commercial writing going i've just been working with matt cardle which was great fun wrote his single from his album which luckily went it went top 10 for him just before christmas so again that kind of does actually give you a confidence as well that you can still go into a writing situation with somebody because i was called in right at the last minute the album was already written they just didn't have a single so i had one day with him pressure wrote a song left went on holiday and within while i was on holiday they just text and said that's it mate it's the lead track from the album it wasn't technically a single it's what they call the lead the lead track which means it was the one that went to radio and hmm. that was nice not having a commercial song out for a while to actually think oh again you're going in last and you're never gonna do it and then it's the single and it's just well he, he did a great video for it and hmm. you know, it's half a million views on there or whatever so it's quite nice to be in a position to be able to still do that and run your own project at the same time. And also, I think Warners are really good at uh, developing artists as well. That's a really good thing I've I've got with Mike Salt, which is finding an artist and spending time with it and developing it yourself at no cost in your studio. Ed Drew did that a lot here. We 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 spent a year writing and writing and writing before he even signed to Warners. Mm. So that was just a gamble on someone being really good and you give more time to them than you would a one or two day session. Um, and then you, your publisher gets involved and, and it becomes a sort of a collaborative venture. Mm. And that works as well. So I've been lucky to be, last year, to get be involved in all three sort of strands of, of that. Well, it sounds like you've got yeah some you got your dark flowers. You've mm. got your commercial work. Yeah. How are you, are you approaching them differently when you come down to it? Are you? Yeah, I suppose. That, I suppose the commercial work is that the obvious avenues for it to generate an income are there. You can't be less fair about it. If you if you're writing with somebody, an artist, and you have two days with them, you don't want to just be sat talking about stuff. You know, you really do have to focus and try and give it your best shot because if it does come out as a single, then there are financial rewards from it and and you've got to pay your mortgage and you've got to afford to buy your instruments and, and stuff like that. Whereas the Dark Flowers thing is a much more, it's more of a lifestyle thing. It's like-minded people that you've brought in. You choose the people you work with you can talk about ideas visual if, you know especially someone like Jim Kerr who's a very well read man you, you can sit here for hours but sometimes I like the uh, deadlines and the competitiveness of working in a commercial market as well sometimes you've got to, you do still have to push yourself and test yourself otherwise you know if you had the luxury of just doing this your own project you can become very self-indulgent and lose sight of whether it's any good or not. Yeah, you know, I worked with the, the great song with the Gabriella Chilmy a 
couple of months ago and it's it's great you know seeing it being taken away and then produced and then you get a, a mix of it back and you start to think oh is that going on the album is that going to be a single and you know and it, it's it has its own sort of level of excitement i don't find a lot of serious artists go, oh come on, i'm not into the commercial side of things well actually if you look at go back to the very first part of this interview you know to me it became obvious that my reason for getting into music was actually three minute brilliant slabs of multicolored pop mm. and once you've been blooded into music by that it never i don't think it ever goes there's something great about turning it up having a killer riff somebody d delivering a fantastic chorus over the top of it and you know thinking yeah that's just as valid as spending six days on a synthesizer sound and and you know getting the correct lyric for the dark flowers thing you know the both things are different disciplines and your instrumental um, music that you do uh your installations and things oh, your yes. soundscapes of course like that's going to be a whole different type of music uh, yeah i'm just preparing to go to italy to do one in an old chapel on a hilltop i couldn't go I'm watching my money. I'm, I've become a much more cautious money watcher these days. Um, and it was snowed in, so I couldn't get up there. But yeah, I've done a lot of uh, stuff in European galleries, which I, I totally love. It's I teach it, actually. Sometimes teach uh, to in various universities, lecture on installation mm. work. It's not just music. You have to have a an interest in different art disciplines as well you know you have to really understand the artist if, if it's if you're working with a sculptor or a painter writing music to go with their work you have to have a, an element of sympathy and appreciation of what that person's discipline is and where they're coming from it's it's very there's very little to be gained income wise from it it is a labor of love you tend to finance your own time at the end of it, you normally get a plane ticket to where it's being held and a great meal with lots of other artists and you find yourself in cities. There's this great YouTube clip of, it was last year, I just ended up in Asti in Italy, just looking to do the sound installation. Next thing, you know, there's a press conference with the with the mayor and the cameras, they're clicking away. It's like, this is ridiculous. Of course, the whole thing amounted to nothing. You know, they get very self-important about this art stuff, but uh, it is, it's fascinating. Mm. It's a different world. Mm. And it's be beautiful stuff to do. You can be as clever as you like. The thing with doing installation is you're not, there's no boundaries to it. Yeah. It mm. becomes, even the dark flowers thing has a, has a parameters to it. It's based on this, it's for public consumption. It must have some sort of boundary to keep the whole thing in. With an installation, you you can just roll out. It can just go. There doesn't have to be a a defined parameter to it, a limit. It can be anything you want it to be. I mean, I even spent today before I saw you. I was shopping. I've recorded the sounds in Sainsbury's. I recorded them in Laddy Summerfields. I recorded them in the park. I haven't done that for ages. I was suddenly thinking, there's music. There's noise. If you're into like. Uh, Steve Reich, uh, minimalism, or John Cage, you know, silence, background as being as important as, as stuff that's predominantly melodically played. You can go into a supermarket, every time somebody scans something, there's a beep. As you walk along, it's all these beep, 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 it starts creating this really weird rhythm. I thought, actually, this bloody insane is now like a sound installation. <laughs> So I'm walking it, snatches of conversation, stuff's coming off the tannoy over there. It's This is a trip in itself. So um, I'm going to use that. Yeah, how would you go on and use that? Well, I thought instantly I could call the thing in the chapel outside in rather than inside out, you know, outside inside, taking the sounds of outside and bringing them inside into a sacred space that is predominantly only ever had choral hymnal music is to actually take sound from the streets of, of a different city in a different country and bring them into this place mm. 
and set them up discreetly in small speakers. So you come out of nowhere to visit this tiny chapel and you and you bombarded with the sounds of Sainsbury's from London. Oh, a bit mixed down and muted and twisted and the thing with installation is don't throw out your dumbest ideas because essentially it has to be an incredibly simple idea. It doesn't have to be a very complicated reason. Yeah. And so you would put those sounds through the computer and you'd start making... Or I would just use the the idea of that to do something. As I was walking back, suddenly I thought, well, has that got anything to do with the church or the chapel? And I thought, well, you could just technically go and record the sounds of the woods around the chapel. This is never silence. There's stuff going on all the time. And then just bring that in to the chapel. So you're bringing the sounds of the outside inside and then you could discreetly take the inside of the chapel if they're doing a, a choral thing and put it outside in the speakers at the same place where you recorded the nature so in these woods on small speakers you have these beautiful slow hymns coming out so you take a walk and you find something in the middle of nowhere and you've got this fantastic choral voices suddenly coming out of nowhere mm. and then if you're still in the church you'll you'll suddenly hear these beautiful sounds of nature coming from inside the church. The the ambience of the church will alter them. So you've turned things on its head, you've got a concept, you've got a title, you've got a reason for people to go and visit it for half an hour and experience something slightly different. I think things with art installations, people go, oh, it's too simple, it's not clever enough, oh, it's, it's not gonna work, and then they start overloading this concept and come the day of the installation or the or the gallery opening or whatever, it's so convoluted the whole thing just falls apart. People are just stood there with bemused looks on their faces. You know, they don't quite grasp your concept. You know, in the in the fifteen minutes they spent walking round, it's it's a very simple process. And so the future is there anything you um, is there anything you want to try that you've never tried in your life with songwriting and producing that you think oh I'd love to try that or I've seen this. I haven't done that myself. No. <laughs> but that's a good answer. No. You're happy with as you are content. I'm happy with these different disciplines. Hmm. You know, the sounds of Tesco's tools really isn't going to jump on the Radio 1 playlist. And Lawson or One Direction are never going to fulfil the needs of an art installation unless it's some major pop art stuff. And all the things, the separate disciplines and that, sure, stuff bleeds into others. But I, I, I think it would be a horrible world if everything was homogenised into one big gloop, which is happening, seems to be happening in every other aspect of, of your life. Everything is part of something else, especially with TV on the computer now, radios on the computer. Everything is becoming centralised and I think the beauty of music is that the classical music remains a different discipline and I hate it when you know a producer produces his classical album oh, oh what's his name Madonna's producer did one um, what's it? William Orbit did some classical pieces in this sort of modern style and it's like it doesn't sound as good as the orchestra that recorded it in a beautiful church with an incredible conductor who spent 40 years refining his discipline, you know, and I think sometimes there's a reason why things should stay separate from each other. I'm, I'm a, that's my pet hate, actually. You've found my pet hate is when people try and cross generalised music and then say it's fantastic isn't it you know I'm just going to put a hip hop beat under this folk track and it's going to be then we're going to add a little bit we're going to call it folktronica beat you know it's like great oh, nice one man you know that's just my pet pet hate uh -huh. there's no reason why you shouldn't do it I'm sure it would be fantastic but it's my pet sort of thing I don't like <laughs> Although saying that in the Dark Flowers, I've mixed a fairly amount of stuff together, but I think it remains pretty congruous, you know, in, in its... There's a reason for it to be in there. Yeah. Well, Paul, thank, thanks so much. Oh, for, it, was it was a long, long time, trip, wasn't, wasn't it? it? Yeah.
Thank you so much for having oh, a chat with fun. us. And I hope, yeah, good fun. at the same time, it revealed some things to yourself that you didn't realise before. Yeah, I can talk a lot. <laughs> well, I was actually going to tell you before you came, make this quick, you know, because I'm going <laughs> oh, really? to open my mouth. It's like, you get God, you've got a lot to say yeah. about nothing. Oh, well, well, thank you so much. No, great. Loved it. Very great. Thank you. Brilliant. It just seems that there isn't many people doing that instrumental work as well as his commercial stuff as well. And I guess that really broadens his his scope on his songwriting. I think he brings that back into his commercial work, which I think is useful. Don't forget you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Warner Chapel and on our Twitter at Warner underscore Chapel. Chapel spelled C-H-A-P-P-E-L-L. Also look out for our YouTube videos that come out every other week with a sneak peek at the next interview. Until next time.